Welcome to Simon Says Inspire, a podcast about life, leadership, and building legacies. I'm John Simon Sr. And I'm Dina Simon. Today, Greg Jackson is our guest. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So a little background about Greg. He and I met about eight years ago. About three or four days a week, we work out together at the Community Workout Center here in Lantana. So we get to spend quite a bit of time, not only chatting about current events, but also how we would fix certain things in the world, which it's great to talk about them, but we never seem to accomplish anything. So we would be great politicians. (laughs) We at least talk about it. Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? Well, you know, we live here in Texas now, and Becky and I have been married almost 50 years. We met right out of high school. And... Uh, from Dayton, Ohio, my passion was automobiles as a kid growing up. You know, I came from a very middle-class family. Didn't have a whole lot. Had two great parents, though. And worked very hard. And by the time I was finishing high school, I had to make a decision on what I wanted to do professionally and decided to go to college, of course. And I always loved cars, and General Motors was my favorite company. And so I went to the University of Dayton. And instead of studying engineering, I was I was really an entrepreneur, for, I guess, from the word go, as, as being a kid, but decided to study business. I got my undergraduate degree, my MBA there. I went to work for Dolco Products Division in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, worked very hard, took on a lot of tough projects very young. And uh, so what happened was they decided back in 1978, late 78 and 79, that they were going to go to Mexico and start opening up plants. Labor was very expensive, and so they saw the opportunity in Mexico, which, you know, back then, you know, it was probably $15, $18 an hour fully loaded. This has been, you know, over 40 years ago, of course. And Mexico was about $2 an hour fully loaded. So there was a big labor saving. So anyways, make a long story short, they selected four of us young guys to move to El Paso, Texas, and commute every day across the border in Juarez, Mexico. And we set up a couple of manufacturing operations over there, and they were only supposed to be there about a year. And to get it set up and turn it over to the Mexican nationals, but that didn't happen. And it was such a big success. They just kept bringing products down and kept expanding. So I was a materials manager and I had customs and purchasing and you know materials management within the plant and warehousing on the other side and customer contact. So I learned a great deal. I had an entrepreneurial background, of course, working for my dad. He had a small business. And we had a great time, you know, for the first couple of years we were there, we were pretty much left alone by the corporate veil in Dayton, Ohio to do our thing. And it was like being an entrepreneur and having the resources of a huge company. And so we had a great time. We did some fantastic work. I learned a lot. And that, that was my start professionally. Wow. What an amazing opportunity. So young as well. Like you said, just all that you learned. How long were you down there? Well, I was in El Paso a total of 31 years. I worked for General Motors a total of eight years. I had the entrepreneurial bug, and so I left on very good terms with General Motors and started my own companies in Juarez, Mexico. So, Greg, tell us a little bit about your son, Ryan, and your daughter, Kayla. You know, he he runs the company Excel Along Learning, and he's doing quite well with that. You know, we're in the prison market, teaching life skills. Uh, in El Paso, I retired 35 years ago financially. And I then gave my time back to the community consulting and helping small businesses of all kinds. And when we moved from El Paso to here in Dallas area, it's where our son lived. My son asked me, you know, what I wanted to do. I said, well, I want to continue helping children and 
consulting and helping businesses. And he says, well, let's do this in, with technology. So we started an online company teaching career skills, financial skills, legal skills, skills and personal wellness skills. And it was about 200 videos that were about 30 minutes long covering a multitude of subjects. And we were fortunate to get into a couple hundred schools across the United States to get started. And then we hit our stride by getting introduced to the prison system in Texas. And they asked us what we could do for them with their life skills program. So we decided to produce specific products for the prison market, which they were excited about. And so we got started in about 115 different prisons in Texas, and we're still in that market. We're still serving them. Well, that was about eight years ago. And we're in other states. So we're in Wyoming. We're in a little bit in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, so also Louisiana. So, you know, we touch probably between 75 and 100,000 offenders a year, returning citizens, as they're called and uh, hoping to impact their lives and help them specifically in re-entry. And that business is, is doing quite well. And so we've, we've got a niche. And in the prison, it's more of an entrepreneurial program that you have? And we teach all life skills and re-entry, but one of the products that we have is, you know, and I'll make this story very short, it is, they, te- they do a very good job in prison teaching vocational skills for the most part. And so when, when the returning citizens leave, they come back into society, they generally have a skill that they wanted or they had one going in. The problem is there's very few employers who really want to hire these individuals, even though they have a skill set. And you know the statistics are pretty clear. If they don't have a job within you know, 90 or 120 days when they come out, the probability of them returning back to doing something to eat is pretty high, and that will not probably be legal. So the key is is getting them employed. Well, the issue is is you know what do you do when you have a still set? No one will hire you. So we developed an entrepreneurial program that's about thirty hours, and it's in the prison. It's very popular, and you know we wrote this from not from a theoretical standpoint or an academic standpoint. We wrote it from boots on the ground, rubber meets the road, and it's been extremely successful. And a lot of individuals have went through it and love it, and have been employed on the outside when they get out. It sounds like a great program. And and as you say, you affect about, what, 75,000 inmates a year? No, you know, it it varies depending on how the states utilize it. We're increasing our coverage throughout the United States, uh, picking prisons. Some of the prisons use it for summer programming. Some use it for purely life skills and re-entry. We have a product called the Re-Entry Roadmap which is really a roadmap and it prepares you getting out to for 40 known obstacles. And that's being studied by Rice University as to its effectiveness and recidivism. And, you know, depending on how you measure recidivism and how, what you include, you know, about 40% of the people that come out of prison will come back to prison. And there's lots of reasons that that happens. Some of them because they can't get a job. Some as they, they have no directions or they don't have a career or they go back and you know they're in the, the same group of people that they associated with that may have had influence on them doing something you know illegal to put them in prison. So we try to head off those problems and have a working plan for them tactically to address that. And so the individuals that's been through it love it. Hopefully, we're going to have some data here in another year or two that tells us exactly the effect of doing so. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Greg, I grew up in the staffing industry. And so that whole part about, you know, finding jobs for people, I totally understand that because so many, you know, so many hiring restrictions for people that have anything on their background. And so finding employers that are willing to give people that reentry opportunity, it's, you know, it can be very limiting. So definitely understand that. But I agree with you, you know, if they aren't able to find jobs, I think it's, you said 90 to 100 days, then they're forced to maybe go back to old habits and then repeat, you know, some of those things. And and so it's super important to find those employers that are willing to give these people that opportunity. And again, you know, prisons have a tough job, you know, and historically they've been set up to, to punish people. But what has happened, I think, and it's coming around, I think Texas is doing a, a real good job in moving towards this is rehabilitation. And taking these individuals and understanding, you know, some of the issues and problems that brought them to prison because, you know, you want to treat not the symptom, but the problem and help change that individual and let them flourish when they get out. And if you don't address some of the core issues that they have, you know, then you've punished them, but you haven't done much to help solve their problems. So that's that's where movement now is is going in terms of rehabilitation and you know, now what's happening is because of technology and our products are aligned with technology, tablets in prison are very effective in terms of helping them, you know, utilize the time, for example, in their cell productively by being educated both on a vocational basis as well as skill set or life skills. So, you know, things are getting better, maybe not as fast as we want them to, but we've clearly seen the last really five years, some some major advancement in trying to help them. I know you and I have talked about the program you have many times while we've been working out. And I think it's interesting, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how the inmates actually administer the program. One of the biggest problems right now facing prisons are retaining help and getting people to work in the prison system. The prison system does not pay necessarily very high, so it's hard to attract individuals outside, therapists, guards, people to come and work in the prison. So as a result of that, the education from being supported with teachers in the classroom has suffered. So one of the one of the things that we've done and we've done extremely well is basically, you know, you can have good teachers and bad teachers and they impact the out the outcome of you learning about the subject matter. Technology is very efficient. And so in our modeling, what we have done, we have taken the knowledge transfer and made that basically video-based, where they can listen to it. It's very consistent. It's, very, it's done very professionally. They can go back and look at it again. What we have done is we have taken the teacher, put them in a facilitating mode that allows them to actually get in the classroom and through exercises many activities, those types of things, engage the student so that they can learn how to apply what they've learned. The problem with that is, again, you need teachers. So there is a model, and Texas has been pretty good with this model, is using peer educators. And these are these are offenders in prison who may have been teachers. They may be very charismatic, and they stand in, and they are the teacher. They're the facilitator. Now, they're not a therapist, but... It allows the the inmates or the offenders to have someone who can facilitate activities and answer discussion questions and those types of things. It's worked out quite well. It's free. The labor is free. 
And there are some very talented individuals in prison, as you can imagine. Just because you've committed a crime doesn't mean that you know you have a low IQ or you're uneducated. There's a lot of educated people in prison, and they're very good at what they what they do from a professional standpoint. So those people are utilized, and it's working out quite well and saving you know the state a lot of money, and it helps with the problem of employment and finding people. And it gives those peer educators another skill that they have on their, you know, quote unquote resume when they are released and, and trying to find jobs. I love that. I have a couple of questions. So the life skills, I love the life skills because, right, we all need life skills. And so I'd love to hear similar. So it sounds like you're in a lot of schools. So are you in high schools, elementary schools? Talk to us a little bit about where Acceleron is focused in the school system. Primarily, and, and I'll be very honest with you, we have not been that successful in the school system. And I'll tell you exactly why, because life skills are looked at differently than math, reading, and science. They're not required. And so the school systems, you know, will tell you they don't have the resources, the time, or the ability to teach these things, which we respect and we understand. The problem that I have with this, and I'll get off here a little bit on my, I'll get on the high horse here, is that you know, my grandchildren are the oldest down seven that she loves to play soccer. And we go to these soccer games and, you know, soccer is all, when you play soccer, you, you, you play soccer, you're going all the time. And you see all these parents at the soccer games and it's a wonderful sport. It's great group activity, but, you know, parents do not teach their children life skills. And it's very disappointing. They will spend hours and hours on the soccer field, which is great. But when it comes home, when you when you bring them home and after they get their homework, why not spend a little bit of time teaching them life skills? Teach in our our curriculum, we start in kindergarten talking about these subject matters all the way up through adulthood. And there's a lot of free stuff on the internet. You don't have to use our stuff, and it's it's really pretty good. Some of it, but you know the the problem is is that we as adults. You know, and there's lots of reasons I think that adults don't teach their kids life skills. It's because maybe they got pretty bad life skills themselves and they haven't been extremely successful. Maybe they are terrible money managers and they're embarrassed even to guide someone on on subject matters that necessarily they're not very good at. But, you know, unless we take an interest in our children and help them develop in life skills early on, and educate them on these things because the school is not going to do it. You can't leave it up to the schools. Right. Now, you may get that at a private school, but you're not going to get that at a public school system necessarily. So that is the that is the challenge. And the parents that do take the time and teach their children these skill sets on the subject matters that we that we embrace, I think they're going to be more successful. They're going to study harder. They're going to be more successful in high school. They're going to pick out the right major in college. They're going to study the right thing in college, and they're going to get the right job. And you know that's that's the thing that we want for our children. We want them to be happy, safe, and and healthy. And you know, unless we guide them and help them, they're not going to acquire those skills on their own. Or when they do, it may be too late. Well, Greg, our, our podcast is of course life, leadership, and building legacies. And I think you have a, a great feel for leadership. I think you you once said you think it's a born trait that you have. I think that it is, but I think it can be a learned trait. Always wanting to be first in line at school and always wanting to lead whatever was going on, good or bad, what was, was going on in high school. 
not that I got any 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 real trouble, but you know, I I learned that I wanted to be a leader. I was more of a leader than a follower. I was not really a very good follower. I always wanted to lead, but you know, you to to learn how to lead, you must follow and learn. And you know, that's one thing in General Motors that was extremely good. It was a very structured setting, and you know, you had bosses, and the bosses had bosses. And you were an underling and you worked your way up and you learned to respect that champion and you learned how to take worse. And you understood what good bosses were and bad bosses. And I had them on both sides. You know, the most effective boss I ever had really I modeled much of my leadership at all was a guy really early on that I had that he his leadership was basically, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do or accomplish. I'm going to give you the resources to get that done. And I expect it to be done. And then I'm going to teach you along the way. And I found that to be enlightening. I thought it to be educational. And so that was the leadership style that I embraced and stuck with my entire career. Nice. I don't think you can beat that. One of the things you've always talked about is measuring different processes. And I know in 92, when you developed the technology to plate the air conditioning components for Ford, one of the things you've always talked about is, I always wanted to make the process better. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, I I have a saying. The saying is, if I can measure it, I can improve it. And so I was relentless on quality and efficiency, which are two in manufacturing, those two things are extremely important. One of my manufacturing plants, I had over th- about 300 people and uh, it was a very technical business. And, you know, metal finishing is something that has many, many different processes, chemical, electrical, mechanical processes. And the ultimate thing is, is when the part comes off the end of the line, it needs to meet a certain quality and durability parameter. And if it doesn't, it's rejected. And, you know, it can be very costly to the customer and to, to your company as well. So, what I decided to do was to measure everything, and I mean everything. We measured over a, a hundred different things. In the process itself, we even measured temperature and the plant humidity. We measured every possible thing you could measure. And once we had those measurements on everything, then we took those and regressed those into a, basically, I had my undergraduate degree. I had a double major in economics and finance. And then with an MBA, but I had a class called econometrics. And basically, you have a dependent variable, which is you know the quality of the park that rejects, and the independent variables are all the things that impact that a hundred things. And stuck that into a model and a mathematical model, and out came about five or six very very important pieces of information that allow our quality to be virtually perfect which is unheard of in the mental fishing about some machine business. And so Ford Motor Company was very happy. But the point of this is, is that if you can measure it, you can improve it. Yeah, absolutely. And Greg, just a very quick story. So I don't know how much John has talked about like his kids, but his son, Rich, who I'm married to, is a chemist and works for a paint company. And I had a car, like maybe 10 years ago, I had a car that and John, you were in town and you told Rich, you're like, tell Dina to stop putting stuff like on her car when she's like opening the trunk because it had scratches all over it. And we were like, I'm not doing that. And the, the front of the car literally looked like we had a cat living in the garage. There were just all these scratches. So anytime sand or anything hit the front of the car, it was taking off the paint. 
So I went to the dealership and said, you know, obviously there's a problem here. And and Rich, I just shared who my husband was because he already knew exactly what had happened based on some of what you're talking about, just because of the processes and, and what you know. And it was pretty funny because that dealership, they brought in like there was 13 people that took that took a look at my car and I left it with them. But they brought in regional people. And you can probably imagine what happened, but they they didn't cure the paint long enough when it was on the line. And so my car was one of possibly many cars that had that issue. So it was just pretty funny because of watching them react and respond. And Rich basically said to the dealership, I know exactly what's happened, but I'm not going to tell you. You guys have to figure it out. The next thing we should, I think, chat a little bit about is your legacy, Greg. I think you're building a great one for your family and also some of the companies that you have worked with. I know you told me about the music school that you spent quite a bit of time on working with. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Or, you know, legacy, we all have legacies. And, you know, I've been very blessed to have been afforded the opportunity to do a lot of super interesting projects. And, my main purpose in life and has been over the last 30 years is to give back and transfer the knowledge that I have to those that seek it or need it or want it. And so over the last, you know, 25 years, almost 30 years, I've consulted free of charge many companies in helping doctors and attorneys and landscape people or sign companies, which is another venture I had in Mexico that resulted into a major sign manufacturing company in Juarez, Mexico. But that I think is the is the legacy is that what you want to do is set up a family unit that gives back and helps and understands that people sometimes get a bad break and you know I like helping people who like to help themselves. I think that's important. I think that you can waste your time unfortunately on people who don't want to try to help themselves. That's a requirement that that I have mandated. But there's a lot of deserving people out there help and. You don't have to necessarily be money. It can be your time. It can be a lot of different things that you can give. And and we all have the ability to give at some level, even if it's time, you know, to, to help people. But one of the more, more recent stories of helping is, and I'll make this very short, I like building guitars. And I don't play, by the way. Should I build guitars? Go figure that out. But uh, one of the things I did is I built a guitar and I, and I decided to take music lessons, or at least I thought I did. And there was this little farmhouse around the bar from where we lived that had a yellow piano in the freight yard. And I asked my wife, I said, yeah, are you aware of any music schools? She says, well, I think that place teaches music. I said, well, there's, there's no sign in front of it. And I went in two or three different times and nobody was at the front desk. And there was like a madhouse. And it was just a very destructive atmosphere from a business perspective. So I left my name and number about three months go by and I didn't hear anything. And I sort of lost interest in taking lessons. But the phone rang and it was this lady that owned the music school and she said she was following up with me and I got very abrupt with her and I said, you know, I, I don't understand your business model. You don't have anybody at the front desk. You know, people are running all over the place. It takes, you know, I have a sign out in front of a, com- a company, you know, it takes you three months to call people back. I said, I, I don't understand. How do you stay in business? And I really just, I mean, I really started chewing on her, you know. And finally, she got to the point, she says, you know, she says, I'm just a musician. She says, I really don't have any business background. And I said, you know what? I'm going to adopt you. And she says, what do you mean? And I said, I'm going to adopt you and your business. And I said, we're going to turn this thing around. 
And she says, well, I don't really have any money to pay you. And I said, you don't pay me a dime. I said, I work for free. I said, so it's going to be very difficult for you to fire me. And she thought that was pretty funny. Well, at the time she had about 300 students, believe it or not. She had about 15 or 16 teachers and it was, was doing pretty well with it. And so to make a, a very long story short, within 18 months, I turned that business around, got her, built a new building, put her in that building, did all the loan package, you know, with the SBA and all the loan requirements to put the developer in the builder, designed the building, put her in there, and she's now grown to about 1,200 students in a period less than about two years. Wow. Super successful, very appreciative. The business is getting ready to expand again. And I never charged a dime and I spent a lot of my personal time. But the satisfaction of helping someone who who wants to succeed excites me and you know, I'm willing to give up myself and my knowledge anytime to help people achieve that. And what a great legacy. Exactly. That's extraordinary. And that's exactly right, John. I was going to say that. So what an amazing legacy. And I know you probably have more of those stories, but you just helped her out in growing her business, her business acumen, all of that to serve more kids and teach more and hire more people. And so think of, you know, how many 1,200 times X as far as how many people you've impacted. And so what an amazing piece of your legacy. Absolutely. Great thing is, as you know, it leads to other things and you know how they they have a theater, they have the visual arts and they have music lessons. And so we learned all, I learned all about those things. And so what we've done now is we're developing a product actually for the prison system and that will include those three things on restorative justice. So this is a new program we're working on. So, you know, good things lead to good things. Nice. You know, one of the things I often think about, Greg, because we went through this back in 2020 is I bet you COVID had a real effect on the music business, especially if they were accustomed to having the teacher and the pupil all in the same room at the same time. Yeah, well, it was devastating. But what we did in 48 hours, we went to Zoom and gave music lessons over Zoom and never missed a beat. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) Right, right. Never missed a beat. Exactly. Well, yeah. And so that was so hard for all of those music schools and all of our kids that were in music in elementary, middle school, high school. Everybody had to pivot that way. So as far as joining us on life leadership and building legacies, we've talked a little bit about all. Is there anything as you were thinking through questions that or topics that you wanted to make sure that we covered for our podcast listeners? Is there anything that you want to share? He's like, you know, John asked me the other day, he said, you know, if you were giving yourself advice back today as if you were 20 years old, what advice would you give yourself, right? And I was thinking about that. And I, I think that from my personal standpoint, I think having having a little bit more compassion for people's situation and taking the time to to listen to people and to think through some of the decisions that you make. I think when you're young, you're, you know, you're ready to, you know, shoot fire from the lip. And I think if I had to do over again, I think I would have, I would say, you know, slow up a little bit and think about how you're impacting people's lives and what you say and what you do and the decisions that you make. Not that I did anything bad, but I can remember situations that 
you know, particularly people who have children. When I didn't have any children, and I had employees that that had problems at home with you know children or whatever, I was probably not not as warm to that as I am today of having children and grandchildren. So I think when you're young, I think you you just need to temper that a little bit, and that's with maturity. I think a lot of that comes with maturity, but that'd be the advice I would give myself. Well, you you're finding out that a lot more compassion when you have grandchildren, also. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And patience. And patience. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that when you are early starting out, and and I agree with you. You know, I know as a leader, also just being female, I had I had many female leaders that would you know say, "Hey, suck it up. I had to do it. You have to do it too." figure, you know, figure out how to balance it all as far as being a working mom. And so I I do often reflect back now saying, gosh, I wish I would have known some of some of what I know now when I was 20, because it would have made life a lot easier. But a lot of that does come with maturity. Wow. There's no instruction manuals with these children when they come out of the womb. There is not. And so, so, you know, you have to figure it out of your own or duplicate what, you know, your parents did if you or a little bit of both. But, you know, that's the life's journey. Yes, it is. So, Greg, I know you have a lot of other interests, and and I think what I'd like to do is we'll probably end this conversation right now, but I'd love to have you back because you've done a lot of work in restoring vehicles, race cars with Richard Petty, Jeff Gordon, and Al Unser. You had an entry in a Brickyard 400. You raced a car in the Bonneville Salt Flats, and you also made a movie in 2009 about the border. And I think that they would be some great topics to bring you back for another interview for our podcast. Well, I appreciate that, and I've enjoyed this. And, you know, as I told John, you know, I don't really like talking about myself, but if it some way inspires or helps other people, I'm all for that. And that's the reason I'm doing this. Nice. Well, and and the other the other teaser I'm going to throw out there is in 1974 how you and Becky encountered a UFO when you were living in Ohio. So I want everybody to think a little bit about that, and you tell a great story about it. Well, I will tell you this, and this is a heads up. This really happened. I know what I saw. My wife knew what she saw. It was an amazing thing, and it sticks in my mind every single day what I saw. Wow. And there was no alcohol involved. You know what? It's hard to believe, but no, there wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear the story. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that you and John have known each other for years, and he's been sharing what we're up to in doing this podcast and been just a super fun passion project for both of us to bring friends, family, and business acquaintances and some people that we don't even know that are interested in, as you said, if you can just inspire somebody, you know, in sharing your story. So thank you, Greg Jackson, so much for being a part of our podcast. Greg has said that he's been very blessed, but I believe that he worked very hard for everything that he's achieved and will continue to achieve in his future. I love that he is focused on giving back and paying it forward now in life. That is just a beautiful quality. Check out Acceleron Learning, and we will have a link to it in the show notes. His bio is very vast, so we will have him come back on to talk about other things in the future. As always, I thank my father-in-law, John Simon, for co-hosting with me and for bringing his good friend, Greg, to the podcast. Until next time, thank you.